Welcome to the Alpha Ministries podcast. Alpha Ministries is a recovery church. Our mission is to teach individuals and institutions to recognize and apply the gospel of grace, building stronger families and communities. Join us today as Pastor John Glenn teaches on biblical self-awareness. You will learn what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves and what it means to be fully adopted into the family of God. We hope you are encouraged and built up in the faith. If you have any questions or comments, be sure to email us and look for some information about us in the show notes. Here's John. The gospel of Jesus Christ is one of the most amazing things that will set us free more than anything else. And that's what I want us to focus in on today in our session. I want us to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ as revealed in the book of Romans. We're going to begin in Romans chapter 3 in just a moment to describe what it is that God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. We're going to be looking at some amazing facts out of the Word of God itself concerning who we are in Christ. In order to get that, we need to have a basic understanding of what the Scripture says about us naturally. In our previous sessions, we've learned that our problem at its root is the fact that we have a heart that is filled with unbelief. Unbelief concerning who God has made us to be. The fact that we are, in fact, worthy because of our union with Christ. This unbelief has got to be dealt with. And the only way we can truly deal with this heart of unbelief, or what the writer to the Hebrews describes as an evil heart of unbelief, filled with false assumptions concerning our worth, is to look at the truth of the Word of God. If you'll imagine with me that your mind is a cassette tape player, and you can only put one cassette tape in that player at a given time, and over on, the right, over on this side, your right, my left, there is a whole stack of C90s of false assumptions. I will be worthy if. There are stack after stack of, of tapes that have been developed throughout our entire life that says, I will be worthy if I can have this or that relationship. I'll be worthy if I can do this or that. On this other side, my right, your left, there is another stack of tapes. Only this stack of tapes contains only one small little C30 that says, I am worthy because... Now your mind, like that tape player, is constantly, 24 hours a day, playing a tape over and over again in what we call self-talk. And that tape, that little tiny C30, occasionally gets placed in your mind or in the tape deck of your mind, and you actually tell yourself the truth that you are worthy. But for the most part, what gets placed in the tape deck of our minds are all these C90s that tell us that all the lies concerning our worth. What I'm concerned with to do now is to actually build a library of true tapes that we can play over and over again in our mind. Jesus put it this way in John chapter 8. He said, if you continue in my word, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth that he was talking about specifically is the truth concerning what he's done to make us worthy. And it's a marvelous truth. It's a glorious truth. It's an exciting truth 
to learn what God says from his word that he's done to make us secure in his love and significant in his plan. We're going to begin to explore that truth in what I consider to be one of the most powerful books of the Bible, and that is the book of Romans. And rather than just dive into the context here of chapter 6, I want to give you a little background so you, you get an understanding of what we're concerned with in this book in terms of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how it applies to each one of us in our life situation personally. To begin with, the first three chapters or so of Romans, the Apostle Paul uses these three chapters to actually prove to us and to the whole world that everyone needs a Savior. He tells us that we are by nature sinful and depraved. That is, that we by nature are born self-centered. Now, it doesn't take long in working with small children, especially little toddlers, to discover that self-centered nature, does it? It doesn't take long in dealing with them and trying to uh, raise them and trying to give them some sense of right and wrong to realize that these little guys are by nature self-centered. As a matter of fact, they become so self-centered and are by nature so self-centered that very frequently we get frustrated with them, which is the reason I'm convinced that God makes them cute. If he didn't make them cute, we might get so frustrated that they might not live to be five or six years old. So I'm sure God, God actually gave them a little grace by making these little fellows cute, but they're also selfish. That is a nature that's born within them. Paul talks about that here in Romans chapter 3. Let me read these verses to you in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. I want to warn you, this is not a pretty picture. It's not a fun picture when you, when you read these verses and you see what God says about the natural human condition. But as we read it, I think you'll be impressed with the need that we have to be saved or to be delivered from this sort of depravity. He says in verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understands. There is none that seeks after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good. No, not one. Now, that's a pretty dismal picture, really. A pretty dismal picture of the human race. But it's truth. It's a truth that we have to face. That there is no one who is naturally good as far as God is concerned. It reminds me of a time that a lawyer came to Jesus and he approached him and said, good master. And he was going to ask him a question about what he ought to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus turned to him and very sharply said, why do you call me good? There is none good but God. Are you calling me God? And of course, Jesus knew ahead of time the lawyer was coming to trick him. And so he kind of beat him to the punch in that sense. But what he was saying is that there are none by nature who are good enough that deserve God's blessings, his love, his acceptance. To put it in our terms, the terms that we've been using all the way through the Alpha series, all are born worthless. All are born insecure and insignificant as persons. There are none good, no, not one, is a biblical way of saying that. But continue on with me. You see some other characteristics. He says they... Their throat, here he gives us an anatomy of a sinner. He says their throat is an open sepulcher. Now, if you all don't realize what an open sepulcher is, what that means is it's a grave, and it's filled with corruption. But he goes even further. He says, with their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. 
Now note, all of these that he's talking about are organs of speech, the throat, the mouth, the tongue, the lips, so on. They're all organs of speech, and what he means to illustrate by that is everything that comes out of our mouth is trash by nature. Everything we say is garbage by nature. The human content of the heart, as we studied previously, remember Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so literally everything, as far as the scriptures is concerned, everything that comes out of our mouth naturally is nothing but garbage. We talk about bad breath. Now this is bad breath here. It's an open sepulcher for a throat. But read on with me. It's not just our conversation that's wrong, with the mouth being full of cursing and bitterness. In verse 15 he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. That means every chance we get, we're going to hurt people around us. Every chance we get, we're quick to hurt people. Not only are we swift to shed blood, but destruction and misery are in their ways. The natural idea here that he's trying to get across to us is that everything we touch is corrupted. Everything man touches, everything that human, human beings plays around with, sooner or later becomes corrupt. And then finally, he tells us, that the way of peace have they not known. The inward emptiness or sense of, of emptiness that we've studied before comes as a lack of peace, that we cannot find peace of mind through the things that we, tr we strive for. Now this is not a pretty picture. Again, let me remind you, this is not a pretty picture. I'm not trying right now to give you a pretty picture. I'm trying to give you a real picture of the natural condition that we all find ourselves in. And it's important that we understand that real picture because unless we understand how vile this picture really is, how ugly this picture really looks, we don't really think that we need someone to do for us what we can't do for us. We don't really think we need a savior. We think everything's fine. And so it, it's important that we see, first of all, that we need desperately a savior to save us from this terrible, ugly condition that we find ourselves in. And so he goes on from this point he tells us, now, whatsoever things the law says, in verse 19, it says to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. What this simply means is that every one of us are without excuse. All of us are in need of a Savior. All of us are in need of God doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. And here he begins now to illustrate the truth in verse 20 of what God has done. He says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And here's a very important point that I want to take a few minutes to illustrate. When, we, when you recognize, when you start getting real, when you put away that denial and you start getting real and you see your natural condition for what it really is, you see that you too are not righteous, that is, good and perfect, and you begin to see your faults, and, and you start to face that, which takes sometimes a tremendous amount of courage, to be honest with ourselves. But when we do this, the first response, naturally, is to try to make up for it, to somehow try to do something to change the fact that we're in this condition. And this is what he talks about here when he says the works of the law. The works of the law is trying to behave ourselves. I don't think I have to ask you folks here in the studio audience how many of you have ever tried to behave yourself to get God to, to love you. Many of you have given testimony. And you who are watching this video, 
Many of you are striving and have been striving all of your life to behave yourself, to try to do what God demands in order for you to be accepted by God. What he's saying here is by works of the law, no flesh will ever be justified means we just simply can't do it. We need someone to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. And at that point, he begins to describe for us the good news. He begins to describe for us the gospel. He says, but now the righteousness of God without the law or apart from the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in these few sentences, what we have revealed for us is that God has a very unique plan to take care of a very dysfunctional human race. He has a unique plan to recover a functional human race out of the shambles of the dysfunctional human race that is naturally here. And that plan is referred to as his plan of salvation, his plan of deliverance his plan of recovery, you could say. I refer to it simply as God's regeneration plan. He has a plan to regenerate, to give new life to, to give new meaning and purpose, to give worth to those who are by nature worthless, hopeless, and helpless. And I want to illustrate this with a little diagram on the board here that illustrates the natural condition we just talked about and then what God does to give us new life. And if you'll bear with me on this illustration, I want you to see, first of all, some of the things that we've studied earlier in our, in our uh, sessions here. We've studied the fact that at birth, we inherited from our parents a personality structure that was genetically predetermined. That is, we at birth received the genes from our mom and our dad and the combination of that genetic structure that gave us our own unique personality structure. I'm going to represent that just simply by a little triangle. This outward line represents our personality structure. It not only describes the kind of body you have, color of skin, color of eyes, color of hair, the, the style or type of body that you have, but it also includes genetic predispositions towards certain kinds of behavior. Everything that you can think of that goes into making up who you are physically is represented by this outward line of the personality structure. And as we live and grow, we have experiences that are brought to us by our environment, by the culture that we grow up in, the family style of communication that we grow up in, or the family style of discipline that we grow up in. All of that environmental influence provides us with what we refer to as personality content, and some of it is very positive. So I'll represent some, some positive experiences here with these little pluses. Some of it's very positive, such as the nurturing, safe kind of environment that's provided for an infant, a father who actually takes time to care about you, a mother who will listen to you, um, brothers and sisters that you can interact with in a healthy way, having your needs met, uh, somewhat on a daily basis in your family. All these are positive, good experiences that we have. 
But we all know and realize that it's not just the positive experiences that shape and mold us either. There are also some negative experiences. Even in the best home, even in the best environment, there are tremendous negative forces, traumatic events that happen to us in our life that also shape our personality content. And these negatives, I'm just going to put in and sprinkle them out. Now, for some folks, some of you may have a lot more negatives than the positive. Others may have some more positive than negative. But the point is that your personality structure, set by genetics, and your personality content, determined by your environment, go together to make up the person you are naturally. Now, all of this, the personality structure, personality content, and so on, is all within the same body. All right, you all understand that this is your body here that we're talking about, and that your personality content, the person that you are, and structure is all set within that same body. But what we've just read out of, out of Romans chapter 3, and we can find it elsewhere in the scriptures, is that this person, by nature, is worthless, is born worthless. By nature, this person is not any good. Isn't that what he just said? Chapter 3, there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none that are good. There are none that seek after God. All we like sheep have gone astray. The problem with the human condition is that, marvelous as it is, as far as God is concerned, it's worthless. And no matter how we dress this human condition up, it's going to remain worthless as well. So God, knowing this better than any of us, has a plan that he has devised to change this for all who will accept that plan. He has a plan to change our worthless condition into being worthy. Now, this plan, he just reveals for us right here in terms of faith. And I want to emphasize this again in verse 21 when he says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifest, being witnessed to by the law and prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. Now, it's really important that you understand, each one of you come to grips with this, this idea that this righteousness of God is what God demands. God, who is holy and righteous, demands absolute perfection from all of us. From the human race, he demands that each one of us be absolutely perfect. God's righteousness is really what we're talking about here. It's not our righteousness, it's not self-righteousness, it's not human righteousness, it's not our efforts to be good under this condition, but it's God's righteousness that he demands. Now let's, let's just talk about that for a moment. What, what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is the righteousness that never has sinned, is not now sinning, and never will sin. God's righteousness is the righteousness that's never been dysfunctional, never made a mistake, never screwed up at all, is not now dysfunctional, and never will be. That's the righteousness of God. And that's what God demands out of this new race of human beings, these worthy people that he's making. The question is then, how do we receive that righteousness? The good news is that righteousness comes by faith alone, apart from any works of the law. When we believe what God says he's done about us for ourselves, when we accept by faith the gospel that's declared in this book, he actually 
gives us that righteousness freely as a gift. This whole concept biblically is called justification. It means that we are declared righteous by God himself, not on the basis of our works, because after all, we were born dysfunctional, not on the basis of our own efforts, because there are none good, no, not one, but on the basis of his grace, because of his great love, he grants to us the righteousness of Christ as a free gift. Now, when we receive that, we are what Jesus referred to as being born again, born of the Spirit or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The way I illustrate this graphic is to put within this larger triangle a small solid triangle. Now you'll notice that it has the same shape as the personality structure we were born with because that's really you. But it is different in that it's colored in here with meaning to show the absolute righteousness that this new person has. This is what the scriptures talks about over and over again concerning being a new creature in Christ. Paul put it this way in, in Second Thessalonians or Second Corinthians 5:17. He said, "Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Behold, old things are passing away; new things are coming." What he's saying is, when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a brand new person. He said the same thing also in Ephesians chapter two, where he says, "For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves; it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he before ordained that we should walk in them. Again, the idea is that when we're born again of the Spirit, a brand new person is created in us. Now, when this takes place is when we first receive Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. When we believe that he died on the cross for our sins, when we accept the fact that God reveals in his word that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to take our punishment on himself and ra raised him again from the dead so that we might believe in him and receive him for justification, when we believe him personally, we are born again. There is a brand new person created inside of us. Now, the reason I give you this illustration on the board is so that you can keep in mind that even though you're this brand new person created in Christ Jesus, you still live in the same body you had beforehand. And even though you live in the same body you had beforehand as a brand new person, you still have all the natural conditioning stored in that heart or the subconscious mind that you used to have before you were born again. And this causes a conflict within. We're going to be dealing with the conflict in the next session the conflict between the new person that God has made us to be and the old habit and power and dominion of sin. But I want to introduce that to you today from the book of Romans by looking now to Romans chapter 6 concerning what God has done to save us from the habit and the power of sin and dysfunction and its death in our lives. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just simply that you believe on Jesus Christ and the good news is you don't have to go to hell. I know the church today has somewhat watered down the gospel. They have said, this is the good news. Trust Jesus and you don't have to go to hell. Well, that's good news when you get ready to die. But until you get ready to die, 
it doesn't really mean a lot to you. I mean, it's going to be exceedingly good news if we, if we were on a deathbed, the fact that we're not going to hell, we're going to heaven to live with God. That's exceedingly good news. But right now, since we're not dying right now, we need some more good news. And the beauty of it is the Bible is filled with good news. It's the good news of what God has done to set us free, not just from the penalty of sin, which is hell, but also from the power of sin, which is the habit and dominion of all of that dysfunctional thinking, of all those false assumptions, of all that we have been conditioned to trust in rather than God, to set us free from the emotional bondages that we fall into, the emotional bondage of hatred and bitterness and resentment, the emotional bondage of depression and anxiety, to set us free from the behavioral addictions that we get into, to set us free from the relational difficulties we find ourselves in because of it. So God has a lot more good news for us in the scriptures than just the fact that we don't have to go to hell. This is what Romans 6, 7, and 8 concerns. It's the good news, I call it the good news for believers, the good news for those who have received Jesus Christ about what God is doing right now to set us free from the habit and power of sin or unbelief in our lives to actually live out an enjoyable Christian victorious life. Now we're going to begin in chapter 6 verse 1 with a question. The Apostle Paul raises a question here concerning how we deal with sin in our lives. He said in verse 1, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What a crazy question to ask. Shall we continue in sin what does he mean? Well, you'd have to understand the context that he's talking um, in this context that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You see, from our diagram, we know that sin is all around us in that natural worthless person we were, and it abounds, and God, by his grace, created a brand new person and made us to be a brand new person in Christ. So where sin abounded, God's grace did much more abound. Using that same reasoning, what Paul is asking here is, shall we just not worry about sin in our life then? Shall we just go on sin all we want to because God will take care of it? Notice how he answers this question. He says in verse 2, God forbid, may it never be. Now what this specifically is talking about is he goes on to ask this simple question, and I want you to listen to this question particularly those of you who are listening to this on videotape, I want you to, to take time to process this question because it's a very profound question. Listen to it. He says, how shall we that are dead to sin continue to live any longer therein? Now, this is a profound question that I want us to take the time to understand. Here we are all worried about sin. Paul knows that we're going to be worried about sin. God knows we're going to be worried about sin because you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, are still living in this sin-cursed body that has the presence of sin in it. There's still a conflict, and so typically we get caught up in this. One of the things that amazes me is how obsessed Christians are with sin. Did you know that? I mean, they really do get obsessed with sin. They're always wondering, is this sin? Is that sin? Is this wrong? Is that wrong? I wonder if you can do this. Maybe if you just do a little bit of this, it's, it's not sin. All right? But if you do a lot of it, then it's sin. Right? I wonder what is sin and what isn't sin. And if they're not obsessed with their own sin, they're certainly obsessed with other people's sin. They're saying, look at that guy. I think he's sinning. 
Why does he have to sin so much? You see, we get obsessed with sin. We get worried about sin. We get, because we know, inherently we know, the wages of sin is death. And we're tired of dying. And so we, we want to know what sin is and what sin isn't so we can deal with sin. But the good news is that God has already been dealing with sin and will continue to deal with sin. And so we need to focus our attention not on what we're going to do about sin, but rather on what God is, has been, and will continue to do about sin in our life. And so this question that Paul gives in verse 2 is a very important question. Now listen to it again. He says, God forbid we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound, but he asks this question, how shall we, now that's us he's talking about, everybody understand that. That's all of you in the studio audience, that's you in the video audience, that's us that he's talking about. We who are believers in Jesus Christ. He says, how shall we who are, that are dead to sin continue to live any longer therein? Now this is an amazing statement. Can you, can you hear what he's saying here? He is, here we are all obsessed with not sinning or dealing with sin, and he's saying, how can you sin? In essence, what he's saying is, you can't sin. You are dead to sin. Now, I've got to give you a word of caution here. Not just put on your spiritual seatbelts, but you're going to have to make sure that uh, not only your seatbelt is in place, but that air balloon is in place, too, on this one. Because what you're going to have to do right now, you're going to have to take your experience, all your experience that you've learned in that personality content, and you're going to have to hang it on a nail now. All right, just leave it alone over there. I'm not going to take your experience away from you now. You can have it back later. But for right now, I want you to set your experience aside because your experience is going to go to war with the Word of God in just a minute. Your experience is going to say, this can't be true. And you're going to be faced with a choice of whether you're going to believe what the Word of God says or whether you're going to believe your own experience. So I'm going to advise you to set your experience aside for a moment just to hear what God says in his word. And when Paul asks this question, how shall we that are dead to sin continue to live any longer therein, he is calling us to a realization that the new person God has made us to be cannot possibly go on sinning. Now it's important to show this diagrammatically again on the board so you understand what we're talking about. When Paul refers to us now, he's not referring to this person that used to be in Adam, but he's now talking about this brand new person that has been justified by God's grace freely through our faith. He is talking about this brand new person that John mentions in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, when he says, whatsoever is born of God does not commit sin. He cannot because his seed remains in him. He is not talking about this nature of sin that yet inhabits the same body we live in, he's talking about this brand new identity, this brand new person that God has made us to be. He says this new person, which is really you, cannot Now that just, I don't know what that does to you folks, but that just stops me in my tracks. I mean, it just stops me dead. I say, wait a minute, I'm, I'm spending all my time and energy worrying about sin, and now he's telling me I can't sin. Well, that just takes all the air out of my sails for a minute. And, and what it does is it restructures my thinking so that I can go on and appreciate what he's about to say. Note this in verse 3. He says, don't you know? This is a series of don't you knows we're going to describe here. Know ye not 
that so many of us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his death. Now, don't let the word baptized throw you here. It's a transliteration of the Greek word baptizo, which just simply means to dip, to plunge, to immerse in, and literally, uh, figuratively means to become one with. So he says, as many of us have been baptized into Christ, he means as many of us who have become one with Jesus Christ have become one with him in his death. Now remember, I told you to keep your experience over here out of this because this is where your experience really flares up now. Your experience says, now wait a minute. There's an awful lot of things that I don't remember ever happening to me. And there's a lot of things when I, the next morning I didn't remember doing. But if someone had killed me, if I had been crucified, I would have remembered that, wouldn't you? You see, your experience now is going to be saying, no way can this happen. But hear what the Word of God says. It says, if you are joined to Christ, when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not only does the Spirit of God come into you, but you were immersed into Christ. You were baptized into Christ, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. We have been baptized by the same Spirit into one body and have been caused to drink in that one Spirit. You have become inseparably joined to Christ. You are one with Him. And what that means is that you died with Christ. Now see how your experience freaks on that? Your experience says, no way, there's never been, look at my palms, there's no nail marks in my hands. I haven't died with Christ, but let me remind you, the Word of God says right here in verse 3 of chapter 6, don't you know that so many of us has been baptized into Christ Jesus Christ, been baptized into his death? So certain of God is God of that fact that he goes on to say in verse 4, therefore we are buried with him. Now normally, as much as you can help it, you don't bury people that aren't dead, do you? Of course not. Normally you only bury dead people. God is so sure that you're dead that he buries you. And he says you are buried. Buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. This is what I refer to as God's regeneration program. It's how he gets us out of being worthless by nature and puts us into a, a marvelous position of being worthy of being secure in God's love and significant in God's plan. At this point, I need to illustrate God's regeneration program in a very practical way so that you can begin to see this more than just on the board. I need a volunteer here now this morning, and I, I need somebody to, to come up here, so I'm going to ask Bill to come up and, and join me here on the camera in front of this audience. He's going to be entering into God's regeneration program now, so let's get him a chair here where he can be comfortable. He is coming now as a totally dysfunctional. Doesn't Bill look like a totally dysfunctional person to you? He makes a good dysfunctional person, doesn't he? have to try hard to look dysfunctional. Now, Bill, you come into God's regeneration program as an addict. What was your drug of choice, Bill? Cocaine. Cocaine was the drug of choice. About how much cocaine did you do at the worst? Ounces. As much as I, I would disappear for four or five days at a time. Four or five days? At a time. Nine days was my record. How much money did you go through when you, <laughs> you were doing coke? How much money would you have in the bank right now if you hadn't done that? None. 
Oh, in the bank now? Yeah. Um, How much do you suppose you wasted no on telling. Thousands of dollars, no, Yes, hundreds of thousands. All right, now, now Bill has a problem here, doesn't he? He's got a problem because he was wasting money, his life was dysfunctional, and that sort of thing. So we're going to imagine him coming into God's regeneration program now, all right? He's come into God's recovery program. According to the Word of God, the first thing that God does, the very first thing that he does to take care of Bill is he reaches into it, he sits him in a chair like this, so he's comfortable, and he reaches into his coat, pulls out a 357 Magnum handgun, cocks the hammer, it's loaded, points it to his head, squeezes the trigger, and blows Bill's brains out. <laughs> Fall over dead, Bill. You're dead. Just lay back. He's dead. Now, that's a pretty radical treatment program, isn't it? But do you notice how effective it is? Huh? Bill will never again do cocaine, will he? Huh? Never again. In his life, will Bill do anymore? He'll never waste any money on cocaine. He'll never act dysfunctional towards his family. Because you see, Bill is dead, right? <laughs> He's absolutely out of it. He's dead. Now, that would be effective, but we have a small problem with that, don't we? The problem is not that he doesn't do any cocaine anymore, is it? The problem is the fact that he can't do anything else either, because he's dead. It's true he's dead to cocaine. He's dead to sin, right? But he's also dead to everything else here. Now, dead is always a problem with us, isn't it? Problem with me, John. <laughs> it's definitely a problem. It is a problem with me, yes. It, it's a definite problem because you can't do anything else when you're dead. But you see, dead has never been a problem with God, who is the God of resurrection, who is the God of living. It's never been a problem. So when he by his grace, killed the old person that Bill was. He just buried that old person once and for all, and he, by his resurrection power, raised up a brand new person, raised him up to stand in righteousness, to walk in newness of life. You see, that's God's resurrection power. That's his plan of recovery. God's plan of recovery is not just to kill the old person, but to raise up a brand new person created in Christ Jesus to walk in newness of life. This is God's plan. Now, let's read on to see what else he has to say about this because there's some exciting things that we're going to discover that he wants to emphasize. Again, in verse 5, he says, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, that is, we've been joined in the likeness of his death, if we've been crucified with Christ, like Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'm this brand new person that is now sharing the character of Christ that's living in me. If we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You see, we are joined to Christ, not only in his death and in his burial, but also in his resurrection. Why? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. Now, when he says old man, he's not talking about your husbands, ladies. And he's not talking about your father here. He's talking about that old 
sinful person that you were before you were born again. That old identity, that old person that was a natural descendant of Adam, that was worthless, that was depraved, that one that fit into the category that says, there is none righteous, no, not one. He said that person was crucified. Our old man is crucified once and for all so that this new man in Christ can be raised up by the glory of the Father. This new man can do what? Look at it in verse 6. That the body of sin might be destroyed. That is, this body that still has the principle of sin in it might be overtaken, that henceforth we should no longer serve sin. You see, God is not at all concerned with you just cleaning up your act. He's not at all concerned with you trying hard not to sin anymore. I, I want you to take this in the spirit in which I give it, but I want you to understand that God wants you to quit trying to be a good Christian because he knows you can't do it. It's impossible for you to, quote, be a good Christian by your own effort. He knows that you can't do it because of that body of sin. And so what he wants you to do, instead of trying so hard to be a good Christian, to clean up your life, to turn over a new leaf, to promise never to do it again, what he wants you to do instead is trust him in what he's doing right now to make you a brand new person. He wants you to believe in him. Remember what Jesus told the Jews. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. What God wants more than anything else is our faith in what he says right here in his word that he's done for us, that we could not do for ourselves. What has he done for us? He has crucified that old person we were, buried that filthy, vile person we were, and raised up a brand new person created in Christ Jesus that is holy and without blame before him. And now, verse 7, he says essentially what we just illustrated with our brother Bill a moment ago. He said that dead men can't sin. He said in verse 7, For he that is dead is free from sin. That's the King James English, for dead men can't sin. He that is dead is free from sin, but that's still negative, isn't it? Just not sinning is not what Christianity is all about, folks. I've got to tell you, I've got to put this down for you and, and tell you about my good Christian friend that I have. This good friend of mine that most people would say is a fine Christian because... He doesn't smoke, he doesn't drink, he doesn't cuss, he doesn't chew, he doesn't run around with women who do. He doesn't go to R-rated movies. You'll never hear any gossip out of his mouth. He will never speak a bad word about anybody. He has never stabbed anybody in the back. He is a good Christian by most people's standards. If it were possible, now he can't always do it, but if it were possible, he'd be at church every Sunday morning. Did you know that? And by most Christian standards, we would say, this is a good Christian man, wouldn't we? But you know who I'm talking about? That's right. This is my friend Moses, who is my dog. He's a black Labrador. <laughs> Moses, my dog, doesn't do all those nasty things we say Christians ought not to do. Moses, my dog, by most people's definition, would be a good Christian. Now, my wife's not present today, and I don't want anybody to tell her that Moses is not a Christian and he's not going to heaven. She, is, she swears that he's going to heaven. But I want you to understand that Christianity is not a matter of what you don't do. It's a matter of who God has made you to be. And so he that is dead is free from sin. However, 
Let's read on. Now he gets positive. He says, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. You see, Christianity is not just a matter of, of the negative aspect of dying to sin and behaving ourselves. It's a matter of living with Christ. If we be dead with him, we also believe that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dies no more. There's no more death in Christ's experience. None. In that he died, he says, he died once unto sin, but in that he lives, he lives continually unto God. Now, this is the positive aspect. God not only crucified that old worthless person that we were in Adam, buried that person once and for all, and raised up a brand new person, but now he assures us that this brand new person he's raised up is going to live for Christ and is going to live with Christ as long as Christ lives. Jesus, you see, will never die again. He will never be sub subject to, uh, subjected to the crucifixion again. He will never again die to sin. In that he died, he died once unto sin, and from now on he lives eternally with the Father. So this brand new person that he's made us to be, this brand new person that he has raised up from the dead is going to live eternally as long as Jesus lives. Why? Because this new person is in Christ, and Christ is in this new person. This new person has become one with Christ. Now, this is the good news of what God has done to make us a brand new person. The question is, are you going to believe it or not? That's the question. The question is, will you accept this good news, or will you continue to think of yourself as that worthless person that's of no value whatsoever? You see, the good news is that God has made you a brand new person by what he did for you and his son Jesus that you couldn't do for yourself. All we can do with that good news is either accept it by faith or just reject it altogether in unbelief. And so he admonishes us. Now he brings your experience back in. We left your experience out while we considered what God has done for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Now he's going to bring your experience back into the picture. He says in verse 11, Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. This is our responsibility. This is the first statement of responsibility is given us in this whole passage. The first statement is for us to count on the fact that we are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. To put it in other words, we are to count on the fact that we are worthy people who God loves and who, has been, who have been accepted by God. We are worthy people who are significant in God's plan. We're to count on the fact that we are adequate as people to fulfill God's purpose. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord, is a call to faith. Faith in what God has done for us, we couldn't do for ourselves. I remember one day trying to impress this upon the minds of some students I was teaching, and I had to drive about 30 miles on some country roads to, to get to the class that morning, and I noticed something on the way. I noticed that these little animals throughout the evening, you know, would scurry back and forth this two-lane busy highway, and occasionally a truck or a car would run over one of them. You've all seen that on the side of the road. You feel sorry for the little animals that that run across like an armadillo or 
or a possum or a rabbit or something runs across the road and they get killed and there they are laying. And I noticed a difference though between the animals who had, had just been kind of, you could tell that they weren't, um, they were just kind of squashed a little bit uh, and laying on the side of the road. They were still intact, you know, and so on. But then every once in a while you'd come across this animal that you couldn't recognize anymore because it was right in the middle of the road and big trucks had come over it and it had become, in fact, road pizza. It had actually been about, it's about this big around, about that flat. Now, while I was thinking about this, Holy Spirit began to deal with me that these animals laying on the side of the road that you could still recognize as animals, they were dead. I knew they were dead. But this one in the middle that was flat, was dead indeed. <laughs> now, what is he telling us to do here? Likewise, count on the fact that you yourselves are dead indeed to sin. Why are you worried about sin? Why are you struggling so hard about sin in your life? Why are you so worried as to what's right or what's wrong? or what other people are doing that's right or wrong. You're dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. Christianity is not, and a functional lifestyle is not worrying about sin. It's believing the gospel that you're a brand new person in Christ. This is what he's calling us to do right here in verse 11. He's saying, count on the fact that you yourselves are dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in some respects, each one of us have a personal struggle to believe this because there are going to be days in which you don't believe you're dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. There are going to be times in which you believe the opposite is true, that you're dead to God and alive unto sin. You're going to get confused in your identity. You're going to get confused about who God has really made you to be. And because of that, you're going to begin to think with that natural reasoning and that natural heart that you are not in fact dead indeed unto sin, but, but you are in fact dead indeed unto God. It's at those times that we need to set our personal experience aside and we need to come back and review again the gospel of Jesus Christ on a personal basis to choose again to believe the marvelous truth of what God has done for us that we could not do for ourselves. He doesn't say that you're dead indeed unto sin if you believe this. He says, rather, you are dead un indeed unto sin. Now believe it. You see, what we have to come to grips with on a daily basis is we have to learn to believe that gospel every single day. Count on the fact that you are dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. May the Lord bless you. Thank you again for listening. If you want more access to Alpha Ministries teaching, you can like us on Facebook, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and visit our website. All times and dates for services and other events are on our website listed in the show notes. 